This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Who do you trust? Well, if you're like most Americans, you probably don't trust politicians all that much. Only about a third of Americans say they trust elected officials. Just around half say they trust business and religious leaders. And I'm sad to say, as a member of the media, that that's about the same number that say they trust the news media. There are other groups that Americans seem to trust overwhelmingly, though. For instance, you might have seen surveys showing that the military enjoys great support among Americans. As of 2019, about 82% of U.S. adults said they could trust members of the nation's armed forces to act in the best interests of the public. But what's the group that scores highest when pollsters seek to measure trust? Well, that would be scientists at 86%, according to the Pew Research Center. Jingwen Zhang's recent study on combating vaccine myths suggests that it may be time to take that trust out for a spin. Zhang and her team have noted that vaccine misinformation is rampant on social media. And while this often seems like an intractable problem, there's a very simple and very effective remedy. Social media stamps of approval or disapproval from research universities and health institutions. Jingwen Zhang studies health promotion and social influence at the University of California, Davis, where she's an assistant professor in the Department of Communication, and she's joining us from Northern California. Jingwen Zhang, welcome. Hello, Matthew. Happy to join this program and discuss about our research on vaccine misinformation and approaches to combat this problem. You study the impact of communication on public health, and... It seems to me you came to this from the communication side of the equation. As an undergrad, you studied media and culture. And then as a graduate student, you focused on English and communication. And I'm wondering when it began to occur to you that there was this very powerful intersection between communication and public health. When did you start making that your focus? My research basically evolved about the different innovations in communication technologies over time. So the time I remember when I really got interested in the question about how communication impacts people's health beliefs and decisions started back in 2011 when the H1N1 pandemic started. So also around that time, it was the rise of social media. CDC, some organizations also started to communicate through those uh, new media channels. So my first research actually started to looking at how the different organizations and individuals talk about H1N1 pandemic and specifically on social media. So that was my first project. And starting from then, my research just evolves over looking into more theoretical foundations for how information circulated on different media technologies would influence how people perceive their susceptibility to diseases, and also how do they cope with the threat. One of the things that I think is really fascinating about your research is that you've shown that public health communication isn't just a matter of getting people to choose healthy behaviors. Communication research can be used to monitor public health as well. And in fact, you were part of a study that showed that people posting things on social media, things like, oh, I'm not feeling so well today, those kinds of posts can actually help us forecast outbreaks. Do you think most people, and I guess I should say here, do you think even most medical professionals really appreciate how powerful communication tools are when it comes to protecting public health? 
Yes, I think it's totally.、Uh, we're moving towards more of that direction. So, because social media is such a tool that everyone can access and express their own opinions or share very personal information, so it's a very decentralized communication network for individuals to connect with each other and also to relay information to each other. So our research, with the very starting point of the COVID pandemic, was looking into how Chinese people were expressing and describing their symptoms on the most popular social media in China. So we documented how individuals describe their symptoms on the social media platform and tallied the number of symptoms reports on the social media, and basically demonstrated that the individual bottom-up reporting of their symptoms on social media could eventually predict the number of actual infection cases in China. This is actually not very difficult to understand because, especially in uncertain times with the pandemic hitting the society. It's a very uncertain situation that not much information is actually out there. So people started to feel that kind kind of like fear and panic. So they utilized the social media to basically trying to figure out what was happening, and also trying to seek help from other people who may experience the same type of symptoms and experiences. And this just sort of becomes like almost like another form of testing that we can use to understand. Where the virus is and where it's spreading to. Yeah, definitely. So, of course, I want to say that our research was not that innovative in the sense because the idea of infovalence, where you utilize、uh, social media information to forecast kind of infections on different countries, have been tested even before the COVID nineteen pandemic. So there was a long time of research looking into Google search of flu. And then relating that to the flu infections in the U.S. many years ago. So this line of research called infovalence has been existing for a long time. Over time, this type of signals on social media have been demonstrated to be meaningful for forecasting infection rates in different pockets of the societies. One of the things that I think public health researchers have long assumed or long hoped is that. If you can just get information about healthy behaviors out to the public, then it is going to have an effect, presumably a, a positive effect. But there's always been an element of disinformation that works in opposition to public health measures. You know, one of the most notable cases is the disinformation put out by tobacco companies about the dangers of smoking. Is the history of formal disinformation campaigns just as long as the history of public health communication campaigns? Yes, I probably want to say that was even like having a longer history than the formal public health campaigns trying to promote healthy behaviors. Yeah,、uh, because、uh, when you're really dating back to the time when there was no. Kind of formal communication channels like、uh, TV or broadcasting, right? It was the time that rumors would spread really fast in kind of shaping how people are perceiving health risks and their own behaviors, right? So really, it depends on what entities are trying to promote their own products and behaviors. Organized disinformation, you know, disinformation from sort of a central source. It seems like in some ways it might even be easier to deal with because. You know, it it did take a long time, but the tobacco companies were eventually exposed and probably quite correctly as not dealing in fact. But 
this problem of vaccine denialism, it seems like it might be a, a more challenging problem in a lot of ways because it's not centralized in some vested interest. It's largely the product of conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the vaccine hesitancy problem is very complicated and in the sense that there, there are so many layers of different distrust towards the vaccine itself. So in order to understand, we have to really understand to looking into the psychology of how people decide to accept this vaccine and to believe that vaccine is going to be effective in protecting against certain viruses and helping the community at large. And especially vaccine is not some individual health choice because yes, you get the vaccines yourself, but the overarching goal of vaccination program is not only on individuals, but really on this idea of protecting the whole communities and the whole population on a large scale. For a particular vaccine program to work, it has to make sure that almost like 90% of the population gets vaccinated. That's the case when we reach the point that the disease is going to be eliminated in the whole population because the immunity of the community is ensured by this rate of coverage. So the emphasis here is really not just on individuals, but also on how individuals are perceiving their roles in the whole community and in relationship to other people. And that's really influenced by the way that we communicate with one another, which right now is, you know, often on social media. And vaccination misinformation seems to spread quite effectively on social media. What what is it about social media that makes it such a, well, like a warm petri dish for conspiratorial ideas about vaccines? Yes, this is actually a very fascinating question for communication research and scholars. So because social media is such a way that you're more connected with your local networks and friends and less so on following, for example, other type of uh, digital informational sources, right? So the social media basically creates this pocket of similar opinions or ideas in the same digital space, right? So if we're looking at a community that shares common type of ideology or common type of distrust towards science or scientists, right? So it's the space that it's likely to nourish these ideas of skepticism and also distrust. And you and your collaborators, you decided to try something that was, well, it's actually like sort of simple and kind of elegant. You just put fact check tags located immediately near or below posts that included false information about vaccines. So you would set up a fake Twitter and you would make a post that included false information. And then you included these tags that said, this information is falsified and here is the reason why. But in particular, you included in these tags the names of research institutions like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention or Johns Hopkins University. And you found that these organizations have quite a bit of power to influence the way people see information. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, yeah, so for many people, it's um, 
maybe it's not that common, but it's frequent that you would be exposed to, to this type of false claims or misinformation shared on your social media. So the first question we wanted to know, for example, if you're looking at that particular information, do you have that urge to check its accuracy or its a related source of it, right? So do you just look into it with a blind mind or are you more likely to check the veracity of the claims? So that's the first thing, right? So basically when you see information, it's already tagged with some additional checking. So that's on the first line, the front line of preventing people from looking into and processing misinformation in the first place. And secondly, we also need to emphasize that when people are trying to process different segments of the information, so here in this case, it's one segment of misinformation, one segment showing the information is falsified. We need to make sure that people also have a higher kind of believability in that fact-checking label itself. So that's why we attach the label with specific sources that we want to know whether different type of sources would actually have more kind of expert perceptions in people's mind. Therefore, they're likely to believe in those fact-checking labels and to further discard the misinformation and not being impacted by it. The effect of research universities were kind of equivalent with the sources as CDC, FDA, and Mayo Clinic. They're both kind of like entities, but one is on the side of medical institutions and on the other side, the research universities basically show the credibility coming from the research community or the scientists as a whole. And when you attach this sort of credibility to the warning tags on these posts, it has a pretty significant effect. How significant are we talking about? In an experiment, we had a control condition where people only saw the misinformation post, right? So the comparison experimental group was when people saw the misinformation attached with the fact-checking label. So we were able to demonstrate that people's pro-vaccine attitude was much higher, significantly higher in the condition where uh, the misinformation was falsified by those different labels. So it was statistically significant, but we didn't have follow-up kind of evidence showing to what extent that attitude actually translated into different behaviors, because that would require a longer term follow up. But at least from the attitudinal side, I would say that this very simple type of approach be a very effective approach if it is going to be implemented on social media. So we could uh, foresee two type of mechanisms here. One is that this labels would deter people from sharing and processing that misinformation. So that's good, right? So basically, we're diminishing the probability that misinformation is further circulated on social media. And the second one, even if they still read that misinformation, right? So these labels were still very significantly providing a protective power in diminishing that misinformation's potential impact on people's pro-vaccine attitude. Does this work even with hesitant people? Is there an effect even on people who come in at the beginning and say, mm, I, don't, I don't really trust vaccines? Right. So we tested that. So because that was a very important question, and we tested people's baseline vaccine skepticism and also their level of conspiracy ideation. 
And so both of these factors, um, vaccine skepticism itself didn't moderate the effects of the fact-checking label. So that means that for people on the different spectrums of vaccine skepticisms, they're equally affected by this fact-checking label. So that is good. And second, we also tested the baseline conspiracy ideations role in moderating the effect of the fact-checking label. So here we observed a very interesting moderation effect. So basically, for people who are high on conspiracy ideation, their baseline pro-vaccine attitude was pretty low. So it was lower than the people who had low levels of conspiracy ideation. But for those people with high level of conspiracy ideation, their pro-vaccine attitude actually experienced a larger increase after being exposed to the fact-checking label. So our study at least provided some evidence saying that for people with an existing conspiracy ideation tendency, their attitude could still be affected by this fact-checking label. So that was a very good sign for saying this type of approach could work for people who are supposed to be least influenced by this type of social media interventions. You know, I love this. I, I like the idea because, you know, everybody says all the time, oh, we need to fact check. We just need to do more fact checking, fact checking. But but what your study has demonstrated is, is a model in which fact checking may actually work. And that is that the fact checking itself isn't enough it needs to be fact-checking by an institution that has some credibility. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's something that we, we need to emphasize and really to think about how to improve the current approaches implied by different social media platforms for doing fact-checking. I remember last year, uh, Facebook started to experiment with the idea of fact-checking vaccine misinformation on their own platform. So the experimental stimuli I saw from Facebook was a similar tag under that misinformation post, but it's saying it's uh, fact-checked by an organization. But that organization is a very unfamiliar one to the public Mm -hmm. because it's basically third-party fact-checking companies Facebook worked with for helping them to moderate the content. I don't remember exactly the name of it, but it's something like health connect or health information so so imagine nobody's ever heard of that (laughs) yeah 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 so at least i don't even know what that source is right so nowadays because information is kind of like everywhere and can come from all different sources if i don't even recognize that name why would i believe in that fact checking label more than the misinformation coming from a seemingly unknown source, right? So so that type of effort may work, but I don't think there is a very strong evidence supporting its effectiveness, right? If we're trying to really combat that misinformation. So the other way to say is trying to reduce the believability of the original misinformation. We need to make the fact-checking coming from a more credible and more believable source in order to combat that believability of the misinformation itself. So in this case, we're really trying to promoting the sources that have a high level of trust in the public. That requires us then to think about what are the sources that actually share a high level of trust and high level of expert in people's perception towards this particular issue of public health and vaccines.
this seems to work, at least in this experiment, seems to work with people who are uh, vaccine hesitant or those who engage in, as you say, uh, conspiratorial ideology, mm-hmm. yeah. ideation. Right. Um, this is a strong enough effect that you have called for researchers and scientists to more actively engage in fact-checking in this sort of manner. And mm-hmm. in fact, you've said, we're not using our power right now. Mm-hmm. What are some of the steps you would like to see organizations, research organizations, with this sort of clout? What are the steps they should be taking? Mm-hmm. So that's that's one implication that we put forth in this paper. I need to acknowledge that I think starting with the COVID-19 pandemic, WHO and CDC have started a very close collaboration with different social media platforms, including Instagram and Facebook, to direct people to the sources that are expert sources and credible organizations. So that move is already on the table, and I wish to see more of the positive effects coming from it. Other than that, I also want to call for more kind of research institutions to engage uh, with a similar type of efforts on social media, we could use our social media sources and channels to engage with this conversation to bring this impression to the public that you can have access to credible information and you can have access to more uh, scientific grounded information to help you to evaluate the benefits and potential side effects of vaccines and then make the best option for yourself. And other than the research universities and organizations, individual scientists could also do more of this work in helping to spread the fact-checking and more informative and valuable discussions about vaccines within our personal social networks, right? Because as I emphasized that a lot of times people want to hear about information coming directly from their social networks and friends, right? So as an individual who can talk on social media, uh, we can also do this type of work to help our friends and communities to understand this issue much better and more comprehensively and getting the right information. Right now, about a third of Americans say that they are likely to refuse to get one of the COVID-19 vaccines. As you noted earlier, that kind of level of vaccine refusal would deeply hurt the prospects of mm-hmm. effective herd immunity. Right. Are you optimistic that we will be able to quell information enough to, you know, to make a dent in that level of denialism? Mm-hmm. I think as a researcher, I'm really kind of optimistic about exercising our own communication power in order to affect or influence communities and individuals. We have to get a deeper understanding of why people are hesitant towards getting the vaccine. Is it because of their misinformed with uh, misinformation claims that are not supported by any kind of like scientific backgrounds, or is that because they don't have enough information, that they don't engage with the discussion with their social networks, with their families, right? Or someone else could be they deeply just uh, don't trust the whole science community, that they're against with everything about any kind of medical innovation, that they're going back to, for example, traditional 
uh, herbal medicine, right? So there are so many different of reasons that are supporting people's uh, global evaluation or attitudinal evaluation towards this thing. So as communication scholar, we want to actually get a deeper understanding or at least to promote the public, the individuals to think about when you're saying that, what type of reasons are running in your mind that are supporting or opposing your specific behavior decision. I think for every individual, this is a very useful exercise that we can do in order to understand ourselves better, right? So then you can pin down what is the hesitancy that is really driving us away from accepting uh, this particular vaccine that is uh, proved to be effective in clinical trials. Because I sometimes find even people have a, this very ambiguous kind of uh, position, but they don't really know why they make that position or why they have that particular directional attitude. So helpful tip for, for people is to, if you're really kind of like hesitant or skeptical about this thing, trying to lay out the different information that you already have received from the media and from your social networks and then trying to figure out which information is more credible and more supported by information from multiple different sources and then doing that exercise and then try to arrive at a more informed decision. That's Jingwen Zhang. She's an assistant professor of communication at UC Davis and one of the authors of a recent paper in the journal Preventative Medicine on the Effects of Fact-Checking Social Media Vaccine Misinformation and attitudes toward vaccines. Jingwen Zhang, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.